That was beautiful. You may be seated. Well, good morning. I hope you all enjoyed your Christmas weekend. My name is Matthew Boffey, and I lead the worship ministry here at Christ Church. I'm looking forward to opening God's Word up with you this morning. Please turn in your Bibles to John 13, 18 through 38, if you have them with you, or you can follow along in your bulletin. For context, uh, we are in the Gospel of John, and where we are in John is Jesus and his disciples are in an upper room on the night before Jesus' crucifixion. He has just washed the disciples' feet and, and taught them about true service, and, and now he's going to uh, continue uh, speaking to them. Again, we're in John uh, chapter 13, starting at verse 18. Hear the word of the Lord. This is Jesus speaking. I am not speaking of all of you. I know whom I have chosen, but the scripture will be fulfilled. He who ate my bread has lifted his heel against me. I am telling you this now before it takes place, that when it does take place, you may believe that I am he. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever receives the one I send receives me, and whoever receives me receives the one who sent me. After saying these things, Jesus was troubled in his spirit and testified, truly, truly, I say to you, one of you will betray me. The disciples looked at one another, uncertain of whom he spoke. One of his disciples, whom Jesus loved, was reclining at table at Jesus' side. So Simon Peter motioned to him to ask Jesus of whom he was speaking. So that disciple, leaning back against Jesus, said to him, Lord, who is it? Jesus answered, It is he to whom I will give this morsel of bread when I have dipped it. So when he had dipped the morsel, he gave it to Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot. Then, after he had taken the morsel, Satan entered into him. Jesus said to him, what you are going to do, do quickly. Now, no one at the table knew why he said this to him. Some thought that because Judas had the money bag, Jesus was telling him, buy what you need for the feast, or that he should give something to the poor. So after receiving the morsel of bread, he immediately went out, and it was night. When he had gone out, Jesus said, now is the Son of Man glorified, and God is glorified in him. If God is glorified in him, God will also glorify him in himself and glorify him at once. Little children, yet a little while I am with you. You will seek me, and just as I said to the Jews, so now I also say to you, where I am going, you cannot come. A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another. Just as I have loved you, you also are to love one another. By this all people know that you are my disciples. If you have love for one another, Simon Peter said to him, Lord, where are you going? Jesus answered him, Where I am going, you cannot follow me now, but you will follow me afterward. Peter said to him, Lord, why can I not follow you now? I will lay down my life for you. Jesus answered, Will you lay down your life for me? Truly, truly, I say to you, the rooster will not crow till you have denied me three times. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. Let's pray. Father, by the light of your spirit, please prepare our hearts to hear your word. I pray that we would treasure what we find here and that it would be to us a comfort and strength and perspective. And ultimately, that it would help us to see with more clarity the true goodness and worthiness and glory of your son, Jesus. In his name we pray. Amen. 
Well, as I studied this passage, I confess to you that I was pulled in many different directions on where to take it. You know, I I wondered, is betrayal the main theme here? Is Jesus' command to love one another, the sort of pinnacle of this text, is that the main theme? Is it belief? Is it God's glory? Is it grief? And as I sat with all these things and tried to piece how they work together, what emerged for me was this phrase, there is, this, there is our suffering, and then there is the story of our suffering. There is our suffering, and then there is the story of our suffering. And by that I mean that what happens to us is not exactly the same thing as what we do with what happens to us. And almost immediately upon thinking about this theme, I thought of the book Man's Search for Meaning by Viktor Frankl. You may be familiar with the book. It's I would put it squarely in the required reading category. It's a remarkable book, and it is essentially a memoir of a man's experience in a Nazi concentration camp. And then the second half of the book is him reflecting on how he maintained hope and meaning in the midst of such a dark experience. And there's a scene in the book where Frankel has the opportunity to escape from the concentration camp. Everything's set to go. All he has to do is walk out to the edge of the camp and meet his friend there. But at this point at his time in the camp, he has essentially been put in charge of a small hospital where he is caring for his fellow prisoners, and he is personally responsible for their health. And so he has this internal conflict that if he goes, he's abandoning his friends. And he describes this moment uh, just before he had the opportunity to escape, and he says, he says this, I made a quick last round of my patients who were lying huddled on the rotten planks of wood on either either side of the huts. I came to my only countryman, who was almost dying, and whose life it had been my ambition to save in spite of his condition. I had to keep my intention to escape to myself, but my comrades seemed to guess that something was wrong. Perhaps I showed a little nervousness. In a tired voice, he asked me, You too are getting out? I denied it, but I found it difficult to avoid his sad look. After my round, I returned to him. Again, a hopeless look greeted me, and somehow I felt it to be an accusation. The unpleasant feeling that had gripped me as soon as I had told my friend I would escape with him became more intense. Suddenly, I decided to take fate into my own hands for once. I ran out of the hut and told my friend that I could not go with him. As soon as I had told him with finality that I had made up my mind to stay with my patience, the unhappy feeling left me. I did not know what the following days would bring, but I had gained an inward peace that I had never experienced before. I returned to the hut, sat down on the boards at my countryman's feet, and tried to comfort him. Then I chatted with the others, trying to quiet them in their delirium. This scene of all the scenes in the book was the most profound to me, and it's because there is something incredibly moving about this level of of moral certitude in such extreme suffering. And this feeling of inward peace that Frankel describes is the peace of, of not letting go of his choice for how he would suffer. The Nazis took every single thing away from him except for his freedom to suffer with dignity and love. There was his suffering, and then there was the story of his suffering. 
Perhaps this story and, and his response makes you mindful of, of suffering in your life, either from the past or, or present. For you, it could be a specific kind of suffering like what Jesus is experiencing here in our text of abandonment and betrayal. Perhaps a spouse or a close friend has deeply wounded you. Or maybe your suffering is, is of a different kind. It's, it's more of a low-grade but constant relational pain. A spouse that seemed to lost all sense of kindness and respect to you or, or a friendship that has gone sour. Maybe it's not relational at all and it's, it's a financial burden that you bear or something to do with your health or perhaps persecution for your faith or, or any number of things. And there's a sense of, of burden and grief in your life and you're wondering, how am I going to carry through with this? There is your suffering and then there's the story of your suffering. And it's not to deny our grief, but to ponder how we fold our grief into the life of faith. And I, I think that our text today gives us instruction for how to do that. So what I'd like to show this morning is, is how Jesus not only models for us how to weather extreme grief, but actually that in his words to the disciples, he prepares them and us to experience grief with hope. So here's my main point, that amid extreme gr- grief, Jesus prepares his followers for faith, hope, and love. Amid extreme grief, Jesus prepares his followers to choose faith, hope, and love. In other words, to tell a story greater than their suffering. So we'll walk through this passage under two broad, two broad headings. The first is what is happening to Jesus. What is happening to Jesus in the story? And the second is, well, what is Jesus doing? What is Jesus doing or how is he responding to this suffering? So let's, let's start with what is happening to Jesus. And it is that he is experiencing the grief of betrayal and of abandonment. You see the betrayal in verses 18 through 30 and abandonment at the very end of, of our text. He is in the thick of his pain and more pain is on the way. Uh, you may remember at the very beginning of John, that John writes of Jesus, the light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. And then shortly after, he came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. John's whole concern in this gospel is that the reader believe that this main character, Jesus, is that light that he mentions in the prologue. And now in our text, we come to the top of the hour of darkness for this main character who is the light. And John's aim is to show that even from the top of that hour, the darkness was not overcoming the light. And so let's look at the darkness. If you look down uh, at verse 21, we, we begin to read about Jesus' betrayal. Jesus, or it says, after saying these things, Jesus was troubled in his spirit and testified, truly, truly, I say to you, One of you will betray me. The disciples looked at one another, uncertain of whom he spoke. You can imagine the shift in the room when Jesus said those words. Just moments before, they were enjoying this meal. Jesus had washed their feet. They're in the middle of this intimate moment. And Jesus speaks from his grief and says, One of you will betray me. Some of us are familiar enough with this story 
to uh, maybe misread Jesus as speaking sort of matter-of-factly. You know, yeah, Judas is set to betray him, Jesus tells them that, and on we go with the story. But this scene is laced with grief. It is not matter-of-fact to Jesus. It says Jesus was troubled in his spirit. And this is because Judas was an actual companion of Jesus, a true friend. He says this in in verse 18 when he quotes from Psalm 41, he who ate my bread has lifted his heel against me. Jesus is quoting from a psalm where David is, is describing the grief of being hated and scorned. Here is part of that psalm. All who hate me whisper together about me. They imagine the worst for me. They say a deadly thing is poured out on him. He will not rise again from where he lies. Even my close friend in whom I trusted, who ate my bread, has lifted his heel against me. It is a lonely and crushing experience to be the object of contempt. And Jesus, by quoting the psalm, is not only conveying that he fulfills the scripture, but that he is experiencing true grief and rejection. And it's not the grief of hatred from an enemy, but of hatred from a friend. The English poet George Herbert uh, wrote of this scene uh, in, in the imagined words of Jesus, my own apostle who the bag did bear, though he had all I had, did not forbear. To sell me also, also and to put me there was ever grief like mine. For 30 pence he did my death devise, who at 300 did the ointment prize. Not half so sweet as my sweet sacrifice. Was ever grief like mine? Jesus is not facing this moment as a stoic. The grief is real. The rejection is real. The contempt is is real. And Judas carries through with it. He's offered the bread. He takes it. He leaves. And so that's the, that is the picture of grief, of Jesus' betrayal. And then if we go to the end of the text, sort of bridges are the middle, we see the grief of his abandonment. I think it's sort of reawakened at the end. If you look down at verse 37, we read of Jesus foretelling Peter's denial. Jesus has just said that Peter cannot follow him, that is, follow him into his crucifixion, but that he will later. And Peter says, Lord, why can I not follow you now? I will lay down my life for you. This sincere statement of fidelity. Jesus responds, will you? Truly, truly, I say to you, the rooster will not crow till you have denied me three times. So in just a short while after Judas secures Jesus' arrest and Jesus is under trial for blasphemy, Peter's asked three times in one way or another, hey, aren't you with Jesus, that guy who's on trial? And each time he says no. And so our text begins and ends with the grief of Jesus. Grief in his betrayal and grief in his abandonment. And this isn't even to mention the true spiritual warfare happening, that Satan has entered into Judas and, and put it in Judas's heart to betray him. So here, friend and enemy are conspiring against Jesus. And even Jesus' most seemingly loyal disciple is going to abandon him. I think the detail at the end of verse 30 is, is well put. It says, and it was night. It's a little narrative clue that there is true darkness looming 
on Jesus. Before we turn to see how Jesus responds to his grief and shines in the darkness, I want to encourage all of us, and especially those who are suffering, and especially those who are suffering betrayal or abandonment, to find comfort in this scene, in the reality that Jesus experienced your same grief. I think it can be hard to know why is it comforting that Jesus also had grief. I think there's a few reasons. One is there is the comfort of having company in grief. It seems that part of what adds to our grief sometimes is our sense of isolation in it, that we are are bearing this load alone and that no one else is experiencing a like grief. So it can be comforting to have a companion in grief. I remember a time in college uh, where a a relationship that I had been excited about ended, and around that same time, an acquaintance friend of mine also was going through a breakup. Hers was far more worse. They were talking about wedding dates when suddenly the the boyfriend just ended their relationship. So she was devastated, and we learned about our mutual misfortune, and it instantly drew us together as friends, and we, we joked that we became you know, pain pals, and this, uh, we had this shared experience, and it actually paved the way for us to enjoy this, this sweet friendship. Grief has the same potential in our life for us in our relationship with Jesus to experience companionship with him in our suffering. The second way in which this is comforting is that Jesus dignifies our suffering. Perhaps you've experienced that feeling of shame for suffering, that somehow it's a sign that you know, you're cursed as a person and you're embarrassed that you have hardship in your life. Well, Jesus is proof that no one is above suffering. If the Son of Glory suffered too, then we can as well suffer with dignity. And then a third is that suffering confirms our participation in Him, especially when we suffer in His name. Jesus Himself will say in a few chapters, if the world hates you, know that it hated me before it hated you. I remember a conversation I had with a man a few years ago who was describing a season in his son's life when his son was, re- was rebellion, re- rebelling and he was, you know, he was selling drugs and it was a bad situation. And, and one night the father was trying to tell his son about Jesus and the son just pushed him and the father fell to the, to the ground and he said, just stop with all that Jesus stuff. And he stormed out of the room and the, the man was telling me in that moment, obviously I was so grieved over my son But I also felt so much joy that I was suffering for the name of Christ. I was experiencing what Christ experienced. Grief as a Christian is absolutely unavoidable. Jesus experienced it, and the more we move into the life of Jesus, we will experience it too. But the comfort is that we are in good company when we do experience grief. And so the grace of Jesus is not only what he came and did for us, but what he let be done to him. He was rejected, he was betrayed, he was abandoned and beaten and killed. You would be hard-pressed to find in your life some experience that the, man, that the Son of Man did not bear in some way as well. And I, so I pray that could be a comfort to you, not as a platitude, but as a doorway into companionship with Jesus, who is himself our true comfort.
Well, as I said in the beginning, the point of this passage is that amid his grief, Jesus prepares his followers to have faith, hope, and love. And now we turn now to the second part of that main point of the preparation for faith, hope, and love. Let's start with faith. Where am I getting this this theme of faith? I want you to look down at verse 19. Jesus says, I am telling you this, that is, that he who ate my bread has lifted his heel against me. I'm telling you this before it takes place, that when it does take place, you may believe that I am he. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever receives the one I send receives me, and whoever receives me receives the one who sent me. Again, the, the aim of this whole gospel is that its readers, including us, would believe that Jesus is the Son of God. Jesus is preparing his disciples for that exact same response of faith here. He wants them to know that when they see Judas give Jesus that kiss of betrayal in the garden, that this very Jesus is the one that God sent. Jesus says something sort of like this, this I'm telling you this now before it takes place, actually a few times over the next few chapters. And so it's clear that one of the things he's doing in this whole speech is shoring up the faith of his disciples for what is to come and for the testing of that faith. Very soon, it will not look very much like Jesus is the one God sent. He'll be beaten and betrayed and put on trial and crucified and buried, and the tomb will be shut. And Jesus is preparing his disciples to see the broader story and to believe that, this is all, that all that is about to take place is part of the plan. The danger for the disciples is that they will reject Jesus when, in fact, they need to receive him in this moment. And I think the same danger is present in our sufferings, that somehow we take it as a sign that God is not real or that God has abandoned us or that God is otherwise not worth following and then leave. What we actually need most in our suffering is to receive Jesus because without him there is no life, there is no hope. There is no meaning. And so this is the first thing Jesus does in his suffering to prepare his disciples. He shores up their faith. Secondly, he gives them reason to hope. He gives them reason to hope. Now, where am I getting this idea of hope when that word doesn't even appear in the text? Look down at verse 31. It says, when he, that is Judas, had gone out, Jesus said, now is the Son of Man glorified, and God is glorified in him. If God is glorified in him, God will also glorify him in himself and glorify him at once. So the more I sat with this passage, the more the theme of hope emerged. And I couldn't quite figure out why until I started to think about the relationship between hope and glory, which is what these verses are all about. So what is Jesus saying here, and what does it have to do with hope? Well, when Jesus says now... Now the Son of Man is glorified. That now is shorthand for now that my death by crucifixion is underway. In other words, the wheels are spinning now, and this is where this whole thing is, he- is heading. Well, then how on earth is he saying the Son of Man is glorified in this? In Son of Man is, is an Old Testament term that, that speaks of, of uh, God in glory and splendor as someone who looks victorious. So how is it that Jesus is saying that the Son of Man is glorified by being on the cross? This is the answer. It is because the cross depicts, depicts most accurately the nature of God. 
The cross depicts most accurately the nature of God. On the cross, the love of God and the wisdom of God and the justice of God and the holiness of God and the wrath of God and the grace of God and the compassion of God, they all come together in this atoning sacrifice because here is God giving of himself to make a way for sinners. God is revealing who he is on the cross, and that is glory. And Jesus, in his willingness to climb up onto that tree, shows once and for all what true love and obedience looks like. He is showing us perfect submission to God. And so the cross is the splendor of God. So then why hope? Why is hope attached to this? It's because hope is the expectation of glory. Hope is the expectation of experiencing in fullness the nature and presence and communion of God. It is the defiant expectation that evil does not get the last word and in fact doesn't even get the microphone. That there is a greater story being written in and through our suffering. I'm reminded of an experience I had two summers ago. I was volunteering at a camp for individuals and families affected by disability, it's, and it's called Hope Heals Camp, and it was founded by a Christian couple, the, the, the wife of which suffered an extreme um, stroke and miraculously survived, and they ended up writing this book about their experience, and and have formed a ministry around it that's all about proclaiming the goodness of God amid hardships. And one aspect of their ministry is this camp that provides rest and resources and community for others who are affected by disability. And I remember walking one night through the mess hall of this, this big camp and, and just taking in the whole scene and noticing the juxtaposition between the hardships all these families were experiencing and the absolute joy and hope with which they were interacting with one another and that they carried in life. I mean, I was walking past people who were spoon-feeding their adult children who were paralyzed uh, through, uh, you know, a car accident or, or from birth, and, and walking past people holding infants with complicated medical conditions and low life expectancy rates, and past a woman whose husband had abandoned her and her family because he... He wanted to escape the, the hardships of, of life with disability and these, all these painful things. And yet here are all these people experiencing joy and community and, and sharing hope together. And I remember thinking, all of this, because that couple chose in the early hours of their darkness to believe that God is doing beautiful things in their hardship, in their grief, that they chose hope and that God has grown through their ministry this great mighty tree. And now all these families are coming in to build a nest there and make a home and find hope with one another in God. Hope finds glory everywhere. It is trained at zooming out to see suffering as framed by the sovereignty of God and the glory of God Hope is not slapping googly eyes on our suffering and saying, look, everything's fine. No, it's looking at our suffering squarely, but then seeing that around our suffering, through our suffering, there is an opportunity to experience and to proclaim 
the excellence of God and the glory of God. And so that is how Jesus is preparing his disciples for hope. Well, this leads finally to the last thing Jesus does in the early hours of his suffering, and that is to proclaim a message for love and to instill in his disciples the need always to choose love. Look at verse 34. He says, A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another. Just as I have loved you, you also are to love one another. By, all, by this, all people know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. This message is remarkable given the context. Judas's footsteps maybe can be heard in the distance. And what Jesus turns to say to his disciples, what he wants to impress upon them most is to love. Not to choose bitterness, not to choose retaliation or to despair, but to love. Love is the legacy that Jesus leaves his disciples. It is the simple summation of his whole life and even his death. It's why I titled the sermon, Love Against the Heel. We are seeing how Jesus, love incarnate, responds to his betrayal. And it is to love and to proclaim love. Like hope, love is defiant against evil. It does not give in to the pressures of betrayal. It does not respond to scorn with scorn or to contempt with contempt. It does not return biting words or apathy or whatever form abandonment is taking. If it did, it would cease to be love. Love is the undeserved kindness of God. And so we who have received undeserved love are to give undeserved love. I wonder if anything so glorifies God as one of his children choosing to love in the midst of pain. Because it is a sincere reflection of his love toward us. When Jesus calls us to love one another as he loved us, he doesn't mean to love one another with warm feelings or good thoughts. He means with death. Love one another to the point of laying down your life for someone. That is how he loved us. And so we return to what we saw in our opening illustration. Viktor Frankl was justified in running away from the scene. He chose love. That level of self-sacrifice, of love, of freedom to choose the good of another of your own in such dire circumstances, the only word that we can use for that is glorious because that is how God loves. It is the pinnacle of human behavior and it can only come from above. Jesus suffered for us in two ways. He suffered in our place and he also taught us how to suffer to suffer with faith, with fixation on glory, that is, with hope, and with a commitment to love. And so I leave us with three points of application. The first is the most essential. It is to receive Jesus by faith. Believe in him for the forgiveness of your sins. And believe not that your sufferings disprove him, but that he has, that he has proved himself superior to your sufferings. Because he bore them in perfection and rose again from the dead to secure your life. The second is to hope. To choose confident and defiant hope. And to learn to frame your suffering in the context of God's glory. And to say, I will not suffer in despair. 
and I will not give in to the pain of my suffering because this is not the whole story. God is writing a different story. And the third is to love. To love even your betrayer and your enemy. To love your unrepentant spouse, though they have seemingly lost love for you. To love your rebellious child, even when they throw you to the ground. To love your insufferable coworker, or whoever it is that comes to mind when you think, I do not want to love that person. And this is because God loves you, a poor sinner. There is your suffering, and then there is the story of your suffering. For all of us, there is a way, there's an opportunity to suffer in a way that tells an incredible story, not of how strong we are, but how good God is, how worthy He is of our hope. Let's pray. Father, Your Word says these three remain, faith, hope, and love, but the greatest of these is love. Lord, I pray that You would pour out Your Holy Spirit upon us to help us walk in this kind of love and hope and faith. I pray that you would give us the grace of not giving in to the pressures of our suffering, but leaning on you to suffer with dignity and with love, with the hope of glory. In your son's name I pray. Amen.